I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, last time, we, uh, we looked at the first part of Daniel 2. Considering together, well, on the one hand, where no hope was to be found. When the king set what seemed to be an impossible task before his wise men, his advisors, his astrologers and enchanters, they were helpless. But Daniel knew where to turn. He knew that there is a God in heaven who understands all mysteries and reveals all secrets and, and he hears our prayers. But now we're going to see how he answered Daniel's prayer and how he addressed the king's desire for understanding. But we're going to start by reading a little bit of overlap from what we saw last time, starting in verse 17, so we're reminded of the context. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch, Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that, order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, 
and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to you, to the king, what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Amen. Beloved saints of God, in a world where might too often makes right, and where the mighty often take advantage of the weak, we, we tend to find it sort of refreshing when the tables get turned. We're amused when we see a video where the man bites the dog. It gives us hope when the underdog takes on the odds-on favorite and wins. When the poor person who struggles to get by makes it big, we cheer for them. And we cheer just as loudly when the boastful man gets what's coming to him. That's part of what makes Daniel 2 such an appealing account. Here comes the king, rich and powerful, who receives all that he desires and commands whatever comes into his mind. And with him, all of his advisors who have all of these, all of these privileges over the often mistreated people of Babylon, many of whom were just conquered servants of other lands. 
And the king is confounded. Absolutely unable to get the one thing that he desires over all. And that's an understanding of this dream that has troubled his heart. And his privileged advisors, so far from being a help to him, end up confounding him even more. And getting themselves sentenced to death. And meanwhile, Daniel Daniel and his friends, who really are the underdogs, they're the little guys in this. They're exiles from their land. They've been kidnapped from their home. They're the new guys on the block. They're sort of advisors to the king, but just barely. And they turn out to be the ones who bring the king exactly what he desires. And when they bring it to him, it turns out that it's word of the king's ultimate untimely demise. Amazing. So, just from a story perspective, we can, we can look at this account and be not just amused, but encouraged. However, it's much more than a good story. This account, if we understand it, if we wrestle with it, this account humbles us. Because though we're not kings, we do tend inherently to place a fair amount of confidence in ourselves. We act as though our future was secured by our puny hands. We think and we act as though no one could thwart the plans that we make. Folks, that just isn't so. We do well to consider the significance for us in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and its interpretation. Because as we do, we find that we're not on the throne. There's only one on the throne. And if we aren't serving Him, if we aren't following after Him, if we aren't putting ourselves in His hands, then we have set ourselves up for disaster and destruction. And really that's what we see here. God's servant confronts his dreaming king with the true ruler of all human destiny. That's our theme. God's servant confronts the dreaming king with the ruler of human destiny. And that confrontation begins with Daniel revealing to the king the hidden future. Our text begins with Daniel sort of in the hot seat. The king asks him, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? It's the same question he's put to all his wise men and it's led every one of them to stammer and make excuses and ultimately to fail the task. See, the king knows This dream he's had, it's important. He understands that, but he doesn't know what it means. And he doesn't trust men. He's smart enough to understand that they'll they'll make up something that sounds good, that fits all of the elements of the dream. But that might just mean that they're creative. He wants the truth. He believes that this dream was given to him by divinity, by deity, by a God. And he wants to know what that God is trying to tell him. And so he insists, don't just tell me what the dream means, tell me what the dream is. Because if you can't do the former or the latter, then you certainly can't do the former either. Daniel says, I can't do it. No man can do it. You have asked what no man is able to do because no man can search the heart and the mind of another man. But, he says... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In other words, he's saying, King, you've asked the wrong people because you've asked people. 
And really only God can reveal this to you. But thankfully, at least four of the king's advisors were servants of the true God. And they asked the one whom the king himself ought to have asked. In sending this dream, Daniel says, God was revealing a hidden future to the king. God made known to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, what will be in the latter days. Now, the latter days is a phrase that would have meant nothing to Nebuchadnezzar, but to the Israelites it meant everything. That was a, a key phrase, both in the law of Moses and in the prophets. The latter days, according to Deuteronomy 4, is the time when God's people who would have been cast off because of their sins, would finally humble themselves, repent, and seek restoration from the God of heaven. The latter days, according to Isaiah and Micah, were the times when the, the mountain of the house of the Lord would be exalted above all the mountains around them. And people from every nation would flow to them, seeking to find peace in the God of Israel. Jeremiah said the latter days would be a time of knowing God when those who had been cursed by God would be restored. So this God-given insight concerned the time known to Israel as the latter days. The time known to Israel as a time of restoration and reconciliation to God. Both for Israel and for the nations around them. Such insights into the future are not given lightly, nor are they given to all men. In verses 29 and 30, Daniel contrasts what has been given to the king versus what has been given to him. To you, O king, he says in verse 29, as you lay in bed. In other words, you didn't earn this. You didn't seek this out. You didn't accomplish anything. When you were entirely passive, entirely vulnerable, the God of heaven gave to you a revelation of what is to be. You were passive. You were given this gift. But as for me, he says, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I'm so wise, but because God wants you to know what He's revealed. He wants you to understand the significance of what you've seen. So Daniel's making sure the king knows right up front, I'm just a messenger. Don't give me any credit for this. It's God who revealed the dream to you and it is God who now has ordained that you understand it. And in order to establish that he knows the truth about the dream, he tells the king what he dreamed. He speaks of a great image, a statue of amazing height and dazzling brilliance, a figure worthy of awe even in the eyes of a king. Daniel describes the statue in detail, its various metals and their distributions. It's weird admixture of the common and the precious. And then he describes this stone that is cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. It's divinely formed and shaped. And this stone comes and it strikes the statue in the feet. And it begins to crush. It begins to destroy. It begins to utterly demolish the, the whole statue from the feet all the way up to the head of gold. Think of a corral plate, so hard, so durable, but when you drop it on a tile floor just right, it shatters into a million pieces. That's the image we get here. 
But unlike that Corel plate where the shards of porcelain are everywhere, no, no. This statue crumbles into the, the brittle husks and something resembling the brittle husks that come off of wheat or rye or barley that blow away on the wind so that seemingly nothing is left. This was the dream, Daniel says. And after, after the statue is destroyed, the rock grows and it fills the whole world. That's what you saw. Now do you want to know what it means? Now we need to examine that dream. Because what that dream signifies is what is to come for us. Not just for Nebuchadnezzar, but also for us. But before we do that, notice the importance of what Daniel has done. He has shown that Israel's God is the one who sends this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. So Israel's God is unquestionably the true God. And he is far mightier than Nebuchadnezzar or all of the things in which Nebuchadnezzar is trusted. He's shown, Daniel has shown, that Israel's God is the true ruler. He has understanding of the times and the seasons yet to come. He intrudes even into the, the bedroom, even into the mind of the great king of Babylon. This God alone is the one who can reveal the hidden future because he's established what the future will hold. And that's just as true today. We tend to dismiss Daniel's age as an age of superstition and false gods. And it was. But so is ours. So is ours. Most of our nation's leaders serve a false god. Not... Aku or Bel of ancient Babylon. No. They serve the false god of secular humanism. The false god that teaches that mankind is sovereign and ultimate. That man himself is the measure of all things, including truth. That's a false god. It's a lie. And it's just as much a silly superstition as believing in Bel of Babylon. Our intellectual elites serve the false god of evolutionary science. Reality, in their idea, must be explained as a series of random accidents over vast quantities of time. Whatever is strong will survive. Whatever is weak deserves to disappear. And there ultimately is no meaning to the universe. That's what our intellectuals serve. The false god that they worship. And our popular culture worships the false gods of me and us. Whatever I enjoy, what delights me, what makes me feel fulfilled, that's what's true. And whatever society accepts by majority vote, that's what's righteous and just. Feelings sit on the throne. Power determines justice. Money and pleasure serve as joint high priests. Those are false gods. And they're just as real and just as prevalent and just as empty as the false gods of Babylon. We kind of look at Nebuchadnezzar and think, how could you be so dumb? Right? To worship these false gods that, that couldn't even tell you what your dream was. But our culture is filled with false gods that are just as empty, just as dumb. We have been blessed to know the one true God. 
We must never scorn that. Young people, you must never scorn the amazing truth that you know the only true God. You serve the only true God, the only one who knows the future and determines the future and establishes truth. And that true God, He reveals to Nebuchadnezzar a hidden future. And that future highlights human weakness. That's the second thing we see here. Daniel first addresses the head of gold. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. Now, in languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, they often arrange a sentence for emphasis. See, both Hebrew and Aramaic were very grammatically rigid. There was a certain word order that you expected. So if that word order was, was changed in any way, well, you knew that that was to imply emphasis. Typically, what you wanted to emphasize would either be placed first in the sentence or last. You would either hit them with it right up front or you would leave that ringing in their ears. And he does that here. The first thing he says, You, O king, the king of kings. You know, I mean, flattery in ancient Babylon would get you everywhere. So Daniel highlights, Nebuchadnezzar, you are indeed the ruler among all rulers, or above all rulers. You are the one to whom all look. And then at the end of the sentence, at least as we read it, the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory belongs to you, O king. Yeah? He's going to appreciate that. Nebuchadnezzar's attention is piqued at this point. But in the Aramaic, Daniel does something different. Normally, the verb comes first. Here, he puts it last. The word order got rearranged in our English, but if we were reading this literally from the Aramaic, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, the God of heaven has given. Last thing he emphasizes, the thing he really highlights, all of this greatness, all of this goodness, all of this glory that you possess, he gave it to you. The gold that represents you is a gift from God. It's been entrusted to you by the one true God. Everything you have, everything you are, it is from him. And you need to know that. Because you are not ultimate. All this might, all this power, all this influence, it's been entrusted to you. It's not something you earned, something you gathered up for yourself. It's not the inheritance from your father. It is from God himself. Like that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar is powerful and precious. He stood as the head. He's the one whose decisions had implications for all the other nations. His reign was valuable, precious in the sight of the, the world. What he decided, where he chose to go, what he determined to do, it had implications for all the other nations. But, all of it came from God. He couldn't move. He couldn't decide. He couldn't expect, expect a victory apart from the decree of the one true God. And then Daniel moves on to the next two. Little is said of these. There's a kingdom that's represented by the silver. Another that's represented by the bronze. He simply points out that they shall be inferior to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. They shall be 
broader, but inferior. But then he moves on because they're not the point. They're really just place markers. The emphasis is on the head of gold and then the two kingdoms that come last. Because that last kingdom representative or representing Rome, the Roman Empire, it's a crusher. Iron in that day was known as the hard metal. Iron is what you use to make farm implements and tools and weapons of war. Iron is what you used when you needed to crush something into fine powder or when you needed to destroy someone or when you needed to cut something that no one else could cut. You made an implement of iron for it. That's what this kingdom was. It was a kingdom. It wasn't very precious, but it was powerful. It destroyed anything that got in its way. But in the midst of that power was weakness. Daniel said that its feet, its foundation, would be made of iron, but also of clay. That signifies division. Everyone knows that iron and clay can't be mixed. They're, they're too different. Their elements can't gel. And with that division comes weakness. Iron is hard and strong and able to crush, but, but not clay. When it's fresh, it's malleable. It just squishes out of the way. And when it dries, when it's baked, well, then it's brittle. It shatters. And Daniel explains, verse 43, As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now that's a fairly accurate description of the Roman Empire's policy of intermarriage and resettlement. Rome was mighty in its great reach and its programs of unification. They took over one kingdom after another. From... Really, not just Rome, but down into the Middle East and Asia and Northern Africa. And they recognized that they had a hard job to keep these all unified. So they resettled people from one place to another, which was no new idea. Babylon did that. Assyria did it before them. But they sought to unite them under the banner of Rome. One nation, one army, one language, one transportation system. One. One. They were one. They sought to emphasize nationalism, nationalistic pride. But in that with which they sought to unify was found their greatest weakness. They weren't, they didn't buy it. They still identify, and we see that in the New Testament, don't we? We see the bitterness with which the Jews regarded Rome. Yeah, sure, we're Roman. No, we're not. We're Jews. And that attitude was found throughout the empire. Well, that's fascinating, right? So what? What difference does it make to us or even to Nebuchadnezzar 500 years before? Well, here's the message that Daniel is emphasizing. Human weakness is a weak foundation. Nebuchadnezzar's glorious position in truth was a position of dependence. He was weak 
before the God of heaven. He depended for everything on the God who had exalted him. And so too for the kingdoms that would follow. So too for Persia, Media. So too for Greece. So too for Rome. Each one of them ultimately was dependent on God who gave them all that they had, all that they were. But as they went, they became less precious because they had less of an understanding of the reality of the God who gave it all to them. They were trusting in themselves, in their wisdom, in their philosophy, in their efforts. And that made them more damaging, sure, but also less precious, less able to stand, far more brittle. How desperately we need to know that lesson. Whenever we rest in ourselves, whenever we rest in men, whenever we trust in humanity, we are lost. How quick we are. Even in our nation, which was founded on Christian principles, how quick we are to put our trust in men. We hear it on every side and from every philosophical background, don't we? Well, the government needs to step in or we're never going to survive this pandemic. Oh, no, 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 no. The grassroots needs to rise up and take back that power that the government has co-opted. No, 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 no. No, we need to educate. No, we need to homeschool. No, we have to have a convention of states. It's all about what man does. But man is iron mixed with clay. There's no strength there. And woe to that land, woe to that people who trust in men. But blessed are they, and blessed are they alone, who set their hope in God. And so we come to the final words of Daniel's confrontation for here at the very end. Daniel sets forth the climax of the message that God has given him to share. Starting in verse 44, we find God's servant demonstrating divine power. Over against human weakness, he demonstrates divine power. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. When's he talking about? In the days of those kings, the context points to the kings of the fourth kingdom. But in truth, that might as well be the kings of all of those kingdoms. They're all cut from one cloth. They're all molded into one statue, aren't they? Each new kingdom arises from the ashes of the old. Each takes up the power and the glory and the resources of all those that proceed. Thus they all contribute to the mighty Roman Empire which forms their legs, their feet, their foundation. During the time of those kings, of that kingdom, a new kingdom will be established by God Himself. Formed, molded, shaped, not by human hands, but by the hand of God. That kingdom is described in a way that inspires wonder. It shall never be destroyed. It shall endure forever. Because, because there is no crisis no political machinations, no pandemic, no famine, no war, nor no rebellion that will bring it to an end. This kingdom will be established as greater than anything else, including everything that could bring down a kingdom of men. The sovereignty and the power of this kingdom will never be left to another. You know what? That can't be said of any other kingdom. It couldn't be said of Rome. Rome is no more. 
right? As great, as sweeping, as monumental as was the Empire of Rome, it's merely a memory now. The British kingdom once had colonies in every land, had trade routes that made it the richest kingdom the world had yet known, and it's gone. It's just a husk shell. America. Love America. What a wonderful blessing it's been to me. What a wonderful blessing it's been to the church. But there will come a time when America is no more. It's nothing but a memory. But not this kingdom. This kingdom has no weakness. This kingdom has no end. This kingdom will endure unto eternity. Because it rests. It finds its security. Not in the wisdom or the efforts of men. But in the hand of God Himself. For this, brothers and sisters, is the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom that was inaugurated when Jesus came forth from the virgin's womb. The kingdom that was proclaimed in the words and the divine works that Jesus worked among men. The kingdom founded on the intense suffering of the cross. The kingdom established in Christ's resurrection and His ascension into heaven. This kingdom is now, beloved, When Jesus, having risen from the dead, stood before His disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. That was the proclamation of the coming of this kingdom. Even now, it is established and it is growing throughout the world. Even now, it is attacking those kingdoms that are built on the weakness of men. Even now, it is spreading and filling the world. Not to say... That the way we see it in this world is its final end. Not at all. There will come a time when Christ comes back. This is an interlude, by the way. There will be a time when Christ comes back and He cleanses everything in this world with fire. Removing all the stain of sin, all the effects of the fall. And then the, the, the kingdom will be established in its utter perfection. But even now, even now we see its fruits. Even now, it's... Citizens are being gathered to the king. Not just here in America, but throughout North America, South America, Europe, Asia, throughout the world. God is establishing, bringing forth His kingdom. And every place He does, we see the difference, don't we? We see the dichotomy between the weakness of of kingdoms established by men and by their power, and how quickly they crumble, how quickly they disintegrate, versus the kingdom that is established in Christ, where His Word reigns supreme, where His power comes forth and and works wonders among His people. That's the kingdom that will last. All these others one day will pass away. Now the king hears this. Nebuchadnezzar hears this. You would think he'd be a little annoyed. Daniel's just told him, you're you're just here for a time. You're precious, but pretty soon you're going to fall away. A kingdom that you have nothing to do with is going to take your place. But the king recognizes the truth. And so in verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. What an amazing confession for a king who claimed to rule the whole world. And then he promotes Daniel, exalts him, gives Daniel power over the chief province of the Babylonian Empire, makes him 
the head advisor over all the advisors that hadn't yet been killed. Even promotes Daniel's friends who had supported him in praying to God. And in that, we see a confirmation of Daniel's message. Because just as God exalted and prospered his chosen servants in Babylon, so he would raise up and has raised up his servant Jesus and all who are in him. Even now, in our catechism class this morning, we saw how Revelation 20 tells us that even now, God's people who do not take the name and the number of the beast, that is, who do not pledge, spoiler alert for those who are studying Revelation, the name and the number of the beast is 666. It's one shy of perfection. Triunity of the perfect number 7. The number of God would be 777. 666 would be the number of man. For those who do not bow to man, who do not make man ultimately, who do, ultimate, who do not serve the false god of man. In this world, we serve the Lord. And when we leave this world, we sit on thrones at the right hand of Christ. And we rule alongside of Him, waiting for that day when He makes all things new. The kingdom has already come. The kingdom is already exalting those who serve the true king. And nothing will ever bring it to an end. Beloved, how do we respond? How do we respond to this assurance that the kingdom is here and that the kingdom is growing and that the kingdom will never fall away? My friends, we have to respond as Nebuchadnezzar did. We have to confess the truth. That Daniel, can, that Daniel has revealed the truth to us that, that his God is the true God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have to rejoice to have received insight into God's plan. And then we have to go beyond Nebuchadnezzar. We have to serve that king. In part, that means serving the kingdom where we've been placed by leading the people of that kingdom to the true king. But in part, it means living counterculturally. Acknowledging that we serve the true King. That His Word is what our neighbors need to hear. That serving Him means serving them. And we're going to see more of that as we dig farther into Daniel's book. But for now, we need to remember what our King, Jesus, taught us. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's a lot of things in this world that tempt us to fear. And certainly there's a lot of people in this world who want us to fear. But he says, fear not. Because what's coming for you is glorious and endless and no one can snatch it away. And therefore, he says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Young people, that means because you belong to the true kingdom and because that kingdom has been established and Christ has all power and authority, don't fear, don't worry, and don't find your identity in these things that are passing away instead. Seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. May that be our passion. May that be our identity. And may the Lord be glorified through us. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You that You have given us this glorious message of Your kingdom. We pray, Father, that You would use us, even in our weakness, to bring You the glory that You deserve. 